0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest is Rupert Spira. I interviewed Rupert two or three years ago, and I've been feeling lately that it's time to interview Rupert again. So I ran into him here at the conference, Science and Non-Duality Conference. And we were talking, and we thought, well, yeah, maybe in the coming year sometime we'll do it, you know, 2015. And then this morning he gave a talk that I attended in which he later told me he felt he was really being radical, and I really liked what he was saying, and, and a lot of the points he made were triggering questions and points of discussion in my mind. So when I ran into him a little later out on the patio, I said, well, let's do it this afternoon if you're available. And so here we are, that's what we're going to do. So I thought I might start, Rupert, by just asking you to give us the gist of what you said this morning, and then we'll take it from there.
1: That's a difficult place to begin, right, because I don't remember very much of what I said this morning. Remind me about the core.
0: Well, one thing we started debating out on the patio was whether consciousness needs a a mind and body in order to know or experience itself.
1: Yes. The talk this morning, I, I started relating the story about a lecture I had been to recently by a professor of philosophy at Oxford University who had said that the ideas of philosophers who say that consciousness can know itself should be put in the trash and this then went on to went on to speak about the experience of consciousness knowing itself which he had denied the possibility of and in particular whether or not consciousness requires the finite mind in order to know itself and it's a very prevalent idea in many you hear it often in in spiritual traditions and and many contemporary teachings, that consciousness needs the world to know itself and in particular that it needs the finite mind to know itself. Uh, This is a misunderstanding. Consciousness knows itself by itself. Consciousness knows itself in the same way that the sun illuminates itself. To suggest that consciousness needs the finite mind in order to know itself is like suggesting that the sun needs to light a candle in order to be illuminated. It's an absurd proposition.
0: You're probably aware of the verse in the Gita that says that the self knows itself by itself.
1: Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. It, it, it's so easy to check this in our experience because neither of us want to sit here speculating about whether consciousness knows itself by itself or not. Experience must be the test of reality. Only experience can decide this matter for us.
0: And I'm glad you're saying that because this could seem like a very academic metaphysical discussion if we didn't point out that the only reason we're having it is that we're interested in experience, we're not interested in sort of yes. debating uh, philosophies.
1: So. Rick let's start by if I were to ask you the question are you aware? I would say yes you would say yes okay how do you know?
0: how do I know that I'm aware? yeah it seems self-evident if I weren't I wouldn't have heard you ask the question
1: okay now what is it that knows the experience of being aware? whatever it is that knows the experience of being aware is obviously what we call i yeah, yeah but, but 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 can you be more specific in, in from your experience you agree i am aware i do now what is it that knows the experience of being aware it is your experience that you are aware whose experience is it pat
0: answer would be my experience
1: and what is my the experience that i am aware what of. is the me that you are referring to what would be its qualities? The me that knows that I am aware? I guess the question would be
0: aware of what? And if it's aware of something like your voice, then there's a process of consciousness which operates through the sense organ, which uh, sense organs, which brings me
1: information from the apparent outside. Okay. Exactly. And for that very reason. If I were to ask you, are you aware of the, the door over there? I'd say yes. You'd say yes, why?
0: Because there it is.
1: Because there it is. You direct your attention towards it, and you can say, there it is. It is my experience. Right. Now, if I was to ask you, are you aware of the tingling sensation at the soles of your feet?
0: They're somewhat numb, but yeah, I feel them.
1: Okay. Now, <laughs> When no, I, asked I wasn't
0: you, thinking about my feet when you pointed out the door. No.
1: When I asked you about the door, you directed your attention towards the door. Right. When I asked you about your feet, you directed your attention towards your feet. Yes. Now, take the current thought, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Are you aware of that thought? Yes. You have brown eyes. In order to know that thought, you must direct your attention towards that thought. Mm-hmm. Now, ask yourself the question, am I aware?
0: One has to direct.
1: The answer you have already answered, quite rightly, is yes. Mm -hmm. But where do you go to find that answer? You don't direct your attention towards the door, you don't direct it towards your feet, you don't direct it towards the thought. What happens to your attention? Because the answer, yes, comes from your experience. There's a self-referral curving back that takes place. Okay, so describe what happens to the attention. Is it directed in a particular direction? Inward. In and out is Inward is a metaphor that is often used but when you say inward be more specific what does inward mean? Follow your attention ask yourself the question am I aware? Mm -hmm. and this time before answering yes pause and see what happens to your attention as it goes to the experience of being aware where does it go?
0: It self-reflects or self-inquires it doesn't pursue a thought, it doesn't pursue a a sensory perception, Mm. it sort of turns back on itself.
1: Yes, but if the attention turns around, I know that this is the conventional formulation, the turning around of the attention, but our attention can only be directed towards an object. Correct. Just to make sure that that's clear, try now to direct your attention towards something that has no objective qualities.
0: I do that every day when I
1: meditate. I'm not no, but ju- no? Ju- just now, take the attention that you are directing towards the door. Mm-hmm. Now, try to direct it towards something which is not objective.
0: Well, if you go like that when you say it, there's not, there's not going to be anything out here. No,
1: but there's objects wherever you go. There's objects, so, so it's sure. obviously not there. So now, no. try again to direct your attention towards something which is not an object.
0: I would close my eyes.
1: Yes. Okay. It's
0: no, no point in having extraneous exactly. sensory inputs. Exactly. Okay my mental activity would begin to settle down because I'm not really concerned with it in this Yet, process.
1: You're not attending to it? No, it's not. Yeah,
0: It doesn't serve the, the inquiry yeah. you, you asked for. Now and where does
1: your attention go?
0: As it settles down you know it's not the first time I've used this metaphor but it's it's kind of like the, the movie playing on the screen getting less and less opaque, more and more transparent and as it does so the screen becomes more apparent. Yes,
1: That's the best I can describe the experience. Where I was trying to lead with, with the questions was that when we are asked the question, am I aware? In order to answer the question from experience our attention has to go to the experience of being aware. So our attention removes itself from from any object, from the door, from the sensation, from the thought, and it looks for the experience of being aware, but it can't find it, because attention can only be directed towards an object. So the attention vacillates for a moment between objects looking for the experience of being aware. If you think that's where you're going to find it. It can't find, whether it goes outwards or inwards, it cannot find the experience of being aware. Anything it focuses itself on is not the experience of being aware. It is what we are aware of. Correct. So the attention vacillates for a moment, and then it begins to subside. It sinks back, and it goes back and back and back and back until it reaches its source at which point it ceases to be attention. Because attention can only stand by being directed towards an object. Without an object to be directed towards, the attention cannot stand. It falls or collapses back into its source and at some point is revealed as pure consciousness. That is, consciousness without an object. And now, having understood this, we can redefine, or rather define, attention as consciousness directed towards an object. In the absence of an object upon which to focus our attention, attention cannot stand and it falls back through lack of support into its source. And that is the process. In fact, it is a non-process. It is a non-practice. The rising of attention is an activity that sinking back of attention is the cessation of that activity. It's often called meditation, and it seems to be an effort that we have to make. It's not an effort that we have to make. It is the cessation of a previous effort, effort. which we didn't realize that we were making. So this non-practice of sinking the attention into its source is what is in Sanskrit called atma Vichara which for many years has been misleadingly translated as self-inquiry.
0: Which sounds very intellectual.
1: Because when people hear self-inquiry, what is an inquiry? An inquiry is an activity of the mind directed towards an object. So when we hear practice self-inquiry, the first thing we all think, and I thought this for many years, is that self-inquiry is an activity of the mind searching for the I. And then, of course, the question arises, well, which I? And where is the I? And we're all aware of the confusions that have arisen around which I are we inquiring into and what is the process of inquiry. Atmavacharya is better translated not as self-inquiry, but self abidance or self-resting. In um, Uspensky's tradition it is referred to as self-remembering. Again, that was in most cases misunderstood because it's only possible to remember something with objective qualities. That was not what was meant in that tradition, but it was misunderstood. So again, the mind went off in search of a self that it was supposed to be remembering. No, it's a a non-objective remembrance of our of our eternal nature. Its recognition, its re-knowing of itself. Now, why is it called a recognition? It's because previously the attention or awareness or consciousness rises in the form of attention in order to know something other than itself. And when consciousness knows something other than itself, such as an object or person or world or thought, it, as it were, turns its back on itself, it ceases gazing at itself and rises in the form of the finite mind or attention, and in the form of the finite mind or attention it can look away from itself, and this apparent looking away from itself involves the forgetting or overlooking of itself, and this is the, in the spiritual tradition what is called the primal ignorance the ignoring of the reality of consciousness so when attention sinks back into its source it doesn't know something new it recognizes something which was it has always known but seemed to overlook because of the exclusive focus of its attention on objects
0: the nature of the senses being to direct the attention outward toward objects and in the process as you're saying the the inner awareness is lost or overshadowed, and of course the movie screen analogy is always used. The objects of sense fall on the screen of the mind overshadow pure, pure awareness, and it appears to be lost just as the screen is lost when the movie plays upon the screen, right? you agree with that analogy, that structure?
1: Yes, yes, the, we could say the rising of the finite mind, or attention, is the the rising of the movie on the screen. Mm -hmm. But in this analogy, it's important to point out that the screen, it's not a conventional TV that is being watched by somebody sitting on their sofa. It's a self-aware screen. It's a magical self-aware screen. When the movie appears, it is watched by the screen. The screen is aware of the movie that appears on it. Now, the movie appears, there is a person walking through a landscape, a person walking through a field. The person looks around and sees trees and fields and flowers and mountains and sky and clouds. In other words, the person in the movie looks around and sees a multiplicity and diversity of objects, all of which are separate from itself. So the person in the movie feels I, the self, here, with my finite mind located here, looks out and sees a multiplicity and diversity of objects. That's how it looks from the perspective of the character in the movie. However, the character in the movie is not doing the watching. The character in the movie is not aware. The character in the movie is made out of the self-aware screen, but he doesn't know it. The knowing The character in the movie feels that the knowing with which it knows its experience belongs to its body. But it is the self-aware screen only the screen is aware. Nothing else could be aware because there's nothing else there apart from the screen to be aware. Now when the screen views the movie, does the screen see a multiplicity and diversity of objects? No, because in the screen's experience, all there is is the screen, the indivisible, intimate, infinite screen. And that is pure consciousness. That is infinite consciousness. But we cannot even say that consciousness is infinite. It's just a concession to the finite mind that believes there are objects. Because from consciousness's point of view, there are no finite things which it is not. In order to say consciousness is infinite or not finite, there must be things that are finite. And then we could say, no, consciousness is not any of those things. But there are only finite things made out of matter from the illusory point of view of the finite self made out of mind. From consciousness's point of view, there is only itself. Pure consciousness never knows or comes in contact with anything other than itself. And so, we cannot say that Consciousness is infinite, that is a concession. It's legitimate to say such a thing as a concession to the belief in objects. If we believe that objects are real, finite objects are real, then it is legitimate to say that Consciousness is infinite. But when we realize that there is just Consciousness, we can no longer call Consciousness infinite. We can no longer even call Consciousness, Consciousness, because Consciousness as opposed to what? Consciousness is always as opposed to objects. So really we should stop talking now. We, we, we cannot name the reality of experience. It truly is unnameable. And yet our entire experience of all this multiplicity and diversity of name and form is itself made out of something that has no name and form. It has no dimensions. Think of this. And this is our experience. Consciousness itself doesn't have a dimension. Don't try to think of that. It's not possible to think of something that has no dimensions.
0: If it had dimensions, it would have to be relative,
1: because only the
0: relative things have dimensions.
1: Yes. Anything that has a dimension, time, space or objects, are relative to the appearance of the finite mind. And the finite mind only appears in the waking and the dreaming states. In other words, it is not absolutely true.
0: Well, the original question, the, the main point I remembered from this morning's conversation was, does consciousness need a mind or a nervous system or any of that okay. in order to know itself? Yes. And uh, let me throw something out and, and see, if, see what you have to say. And that is that consciousness by definition is conscious. And being conscious, what does it have to be conscious of other than itself? Because what else is there? on the level of consciousness, besides consciousness. And yet its nature is to be conscious. So if consciousness, whose nature is to be conscious, has to be conscious of something, it can only be conscious of itself. But in so doing, if it does this, then all of a sudden the one has bifurcated into the knower, the known, and the process of knowing, which are called Rishi Devatan Chandas in, in
1: Sanskrit. Consciousness doesn't know itself in the way the finite mind seems to know objects. I'll define the finite mind more clearly in a minute, if if you remind me. The finite mind always knows things in subject-object relationship. I, the finite mind here, knows you, the person or object over there. So the finite mind, the way the finite mind knows is, by definition, in subject-object relationship. Consciousness doesn't know itself in subject-object relationship. It is the knowing of itself. Let me try to, let me give you a metaphor to try to make this clearer. Imagine this room, the space of this room. Now, add the quality of knowing or consciousness to this space. So it's not just an inert, empty space. We've added knowing to the space it's a knowing empty space and now take out all the objects and the people so that there is just empty knowing space now what does that empty knowing space have to do in order to know itself
0: what makes you think that if we're talking about a room which is a relative manifest thing no, full of air f- molecules f- and stuff. D- 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 um, just
1: keep the metaphor of space. Oh, okay, it, it, space, it's, it's em- knowing, empty knowing
0: space d- with no particles or
1: anything. No know, empty knowing space. What does it have to do to know itself?
0: I'm not sure that we want to say that space or empty. No, it's a metaphoric. No, no, it's a
1: metaphoric. Okay. I'm, I'm just trying to give you a. a well,
0: why don't a, we just use the word consciousness? What, what does consciousness? Uh, because have to it's, do it's do too it abstract.
1: To because it's, it's. I'm trying to make it more concrete for okay. you. We can go straight... Let's go straight there. Okay. Okay. What does consciousness have to do to know itself? And the reason I gave you this metaphor is because in your previous response, you said that in order to know itself, consciousness had to divide itself into a knower and a known in order to know itself. So it was in response to that comment that I tried to give you the metaphor of space. But I'm happy to stay with consciousness. Let's stay with consciousness. Consciousness, the nature of consciousness is knowing or pure awareness. Pure
0: knowingness. Pure, pure
1: knowingness. Now, what does it need to do to know itself? Is
0: this a trick question?
1: No, it's, it's no. <laughs> not at all. It's just it's a straightforward question. But I want to make sure that when we talk about consciousness, we're not talking about some abstract you are conscious, mm-hmm. yes. What do you have to do to know that you are conscious? What does your consciousness, I'm calling it your consciousness, what does consciousness have to do in order to know itself?
0: Well, there's two questions there. Um, if you're talking about me, what do I have to
1: do? No, to- I'm talking about you consciousness.
0: You? Oh, me as consciousness.
1: You consciousness. What do you have to do to know that you are conscious?
0: If you're speaking of
1: universal awareness, when no, you say no, you, I'm it's not, a
0: personal pronoun.
1: I'm not talking of universal... Um, it's a universal. personal
0: pronoun. It refers to me,
1: it, you know, Rick Archer. It, it refers to you, what you essentially are. Essentially. All your life, Rick, you have been saying, implicitly rather than explicitly, I am aware of the world. I am aware of my thoughts. I am aware of my feelings. I am aware of the taste of tea. I am aware of the face of my friend. I am aware of this conversation. I am aware of the sensation of my hand on my cheeks. I am aware of the temperature of the air. I am aware of the hum of the AC. So it's a three-part thing. I am aware. I am aware. I am aware. I am aware. Right. All your life. I, you have always been I, Mm -hmm. yes? You have always referred to yourself as I. Now, have any of your thoughts remained present all your life? No. Have any of your sensations remained present all your life? Perceptions? No. No, but I, you acknowledge, has remained present all your life. Now what does I refer to? It must refer to that that has remained with you all your life. Mm-hmm. What is that?
0: If I can give it a word, the knower, the, the, the self, the screen of awareness... which No, but, but
1: try not to use a, a metaphor, try to use an experience. What experience in you? Consciousness. Yeah, the experience of being aware. I am aware, so mm-hmm. let's have no doubt now when we say i when i say you i am mm-hmm. speaking to consciousness okay okay now what which does the consciousness, same consciousness f- let, as you let's not go from there let's not speaking. go there for a for a moment because i want to stick with it with your original question which is about whether consciousness needs to rise in the form of the finite mind mm-hmm. in order to know itself let's stick there first of all we want to be clear about what we mean what i mean by you when i say you mm-hmm. rick what do you, consciousness, we've already ascertained now, you've agreed, mm-hmm. what I am is that which is aware. No. Now what does that which is aware have to do to be aware of itself?
0: Well I think the second verse of the Yoga Sutras gives us a good... No, I don't want no, to no, know really.
1: the Yoga Sutras, I oh, want to know your a, it's experience. It's
0: very germane, my experience is described by that verse. which is But I
1: want to hear it in your words, Rick.
0: Okay. I'll pretend I wrote this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough.
0: Yoga's chitta vritti Yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. And then the self is known and the next verse is something like that. So it's the ongoing turbulence or agitation or activity of the mind and of the senses and so on that has kept that keeps people bound in their individual boundaries all of their lives and when they find a way to allow that to secede, as we were speaking earlier, to settle down, to diminish down to nothing without falling, actually falling asleep, then what do you have left? Consciousness knows itself without an object.
1: Let me ask you a question, Rick. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking
0: experientially here, not just having read the Yoga Sutras. Are you aware? Yes.
1: What happened between the question, between the thought are you aware, and the thought, yes?
0: Some Billions of neurons fired and interpreted the words? No, no. No.
1: What happened in your experience? We hear the question, am I aware? Pause. You didn't pause long, it's true, but you're seasoned at this. You don't need to pause long. (laughs) We hear the question, am I aware? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Pause. There's a moment of reflection, perhaps. Pause. Mm -hmm. Answer, yes. Mm -hmm. The question, am I aware, is a thought. The answer, yes, is a thought. What takes place in between those two thoughts? You become aware that you are aware.
0: Yeah, there's a moment of self-reflection, of introspection.
1: I become aware Mm -hmm. that I am aware. It's a longhand version of the statement in the Old Testament, I am that I am. Mm -hmm. I am that which is aware that I am. The I That is aware, knows that it is aware. That experience of being aware, of being aware, took place in between these two thoughts. Awareness didn't have to go anywhere. In order to know the first thought, awareness or consciousness had to rise in the form of the finite mind. When that thought came to an end, attention, the finite mind, plunged into its source, And then in order to formulate the answer, yes, the finite mind rises again, and in the form of the thought, yes. But in between these two thoughts, the attention plunges into its source and is revealed as the simple experience, I am aware, or being aware of being aware. Now, how difficult is that?
0: Now, most people aren't gonna have Rupert asking them that question all day long. And I've known people and interviewed people who, in my opinion, more or less tormented themselves by continually asking that question, probing, asking that question while trying to live an active life or or perhaps finding themselves incapable of living an active life.
1: I'm sorry Rick, I, I want to keep on track. You asked me the question about whether consciousness needs to rise in the form of the finite mind in order to know itself and i don't feel we've finished with that question no we haven't
0: and i actually have a whole and kind of
1: cosmological y- angle on that i want to bring yeah up. but i i want to stay right on the issue okay. and not deviate from it until we've and i'm trying to bring you in an experiential way not referring to the sutras not referring to the great teachers not referring to metaphors or concepts i'm trying to show you in your direct experience that you, consciousness, have the experience of knowing your own being in the absence of the finite mind. And that that is not an extraordinary experience that happens after 30 years of meditation to one in a million people, if they're lucky. It is everybody's experience. It is available to everybody equally. If we had Ramana Maharshi sitting here, And we asked him the question, are you aware? I guess he would probably just smile at us, but let's suppose that he would answer, yes. In between the thought, are you aware, and the question, and the the answer, yes, his attention would sink into its source. If we had somebody here taken off the streets, who had no idea about non-duality or spiritual, spiritual matters, a die-hard materialist sitting on the other side of the room from Ramana Maharshi and we said to her, are you aware? She would probably have to pause a little longer than Ramana Maharshi but as long as she understood the question and she was interested in participating she would hear the question, am I aware? Pause. Yes she would go to exactly the same place in her experience that Ramana Maharshi went to in his. In that moment, her attention would have collapsed momentarily into its source, and in that moment, the experience of awareness, being aware of itself, would have shone briefly in her experience. I say briefly because in her case, through force of habit, the finite mind would have risen almost instantly again in order to go outwards into the realm of objects whereas Ramana Maharshi's attention would have remained resting in its source.
0: So what you're saying is it's the same thing, but in this case it's perpetual, stable, nothing Ramana has to do... to.
1: What I'm saying is that in order to know something other than itself, consciousness needs to rise in the form of the finite mind. And only in the form of the finite mind can consciousness cease knowing its own being, Mm -hmm. or seem to cease knowing its own being, and know something other than its own being. However, in order to know itself, it doesn't need to rise in the form of the finite mind. It remains at home. It knows itself simply by being itself. That is the way consciousness knows itself, simply by being itself. It is self-luminous like the sun. In order to illuminate the moon, the sun needs to shine its rays on the moon. But in order to know itself, it doesn't need to do anything with its light. It is self-luminous. It knows itself by itself without the aid of any other object. Consciousness is self-luminous. It does not need to reflect itself off a puny little finite mind in order to know its own being. I'm not talking abstract philosophy Mm -hmm. or metaphysics. I'm trying to show you that you have the experience on a regular basis, everybody does, of attention sinking into its source. In other words, the finite mind sinking into its source and standing revealed as this self-knowing, self-luminous consciousness.
0: And I would suggest that for someone like Ramana, and maybe for some of us to whatever degree of clarity, we're permanently sunk uh, there doesn 't have to be a sort of, let me sink in check it out there 's a sort of a, a perpetual uh, appreciation of that source quality of that source level of, of life in addition but but it 's been integrated and stabilized to the point where it can be a living reality we can be riding a bicycle or giving a lecture or doing whatever we do and we don't have to keep checking in or doing anything whatsoever it's been sort of infused or stabilized in such a way that this is naturally breathing.
1: Well I don't want to presume to speak about Ramana Maharshi's experience
0: Or your own. I mean you can speak from But
1: what I can say for myself is that when the attention Sinks, And it's not a one-time thing. It's not, oh, the attention has sunk into its source and stands revealed as consciousness. Rumi described it so beautifully. He said, flow down and down and down in ever-widening rings of being. It's the sinking and sinking and sinking and sinking of the attention into its source. And as the attention sinks into its source, it is gradually, in most cases, very occasionally, suddenly, but gradually, in most cases, the attention is divested of all the limitations that thought and feeling have superimposed on it, and at some point it stands attention is completely undressed, it stands naked, and attention undressed attention divested of all limitations is pure consciousness now
0: and at that point, I'd say the word "attention" is no longer uh,
1: quite, attention quite the word we it, want it to is use. no longer attention right. the word "attention" comes from
0: it has, it has the implication of directing or focusing
1: It or has It comes from the Latin word tendere, which means to stretch. So attention like a tendon. is the stretching of awareness towards an apparent object. Mm-hmm. So in attention there is always a subtle effort. We've become so habituated to giving our attention to objects that we actually don't notice that it requires a subtle effort. So attention is a stretching of awareness or consciousness to an object that is seemingly outside of itself. So this sinking of attention is the, the relaxation of this effort towards the object. It, so, so you're absolutely right. When all the tension goes out of attention, it no longer stands as attention. It is revealed as inherently peaceful consciousness. Consciousness in which there is no tension, no agitation. Right. That kind is, that is the a
0: ex- simplest, natu- most natural it's state of...
1: It's this knowing of our own being. Or Consciousness is knowing of its own being in us. It, it shines in the mind as the knowledge, I am, or I am aware. And it shines in our feelings as peace or happiness. So the experience of peace or happiness is God's footprint in the heart. Mm. So in this way, by by exploring our experience in this way, we come to understand that consciousness doesn't need anything other than itself to know itself. It knows itself by itself. It's this self-recognition which comes about through this non-practice of self-abidance. Now, to go back to our conversation about the arising of the world, when the attention rises again after this recognition, when it rises again, it is clear that the attention never actually leaves consciousness. Previously, we thought that the attention left ourselves and came in contact with an object that is separate from ourselves. Now it is clear to us that attention never leaves consciousness. Attention is a a modulation of consciousness itself. So as the finite mind rises, it rises in two forms, one in the form of thought, two in the form of perception. Normally, thought takes up residence inside, perceived objects take place outside. But now, with this new feeling understanding, this self-recognition, it is clear to us that the attention never leaves consciousness, never comes in contact with anything outside consciousness. Everything that arises arises in consciousness, is known by consciousness, and is made of consciousness. So all experience is a modulation of this infinite consciousness. And that is what the Sufis mean when they say, wherever the eye falls, there is the face of God. It is what the Sufis mean when they say, there is no God, but God. When they say there is no God, they mean no object has its own existence. There is no such thing as an object that exists. Existence means it comes from two Latin words, ex and sistere, meaning to stand out from. No object truly stands out from consciousness or being and comes into existence. Nothing ever leaves consciousness. No thing ever comes into existence and stands with its own being. That's what it means. There is no God. Things don't don't have their own being. The, The apparent existence of things is God's existence. Is the, is the being of infinite consciousness. Right. So no thing truly exists. There is no real existence. No, nothing comes into being. And nothing leaves being. There is just this infinite, eternal, ever-present being knowing and being itself alone. And if things did come
0: into existence and leave being, then, leave, then being wouldn't be ever-present or infinite or omnipresent or any of those things, because it would have had to be kind of like cordoned off into some little area where, yes. which ex- was exactly. excluded from the glass. Exactly. The <laughs> it's
1: not possible for infinite consciousness to know a finite object. Because imagine you have infinite consciousness and then a little finite object appears. Now that little finite object would displace just a tiny part of consciousness's infinity. In other words, consciousness's infinity would no longer be infinite. There would be a hole in it somehow. (laughs) There would be a hole in it, because there was a finite object there which would immediately make consciousness a finite subject. In other words, it's only possible to know a finite object from the point of view of a finite subject. Infinite consciousness knows nothing of finite subjects and finite objects. Infinite consciousness knows nothing of the separate self made out of mind or the outside world made out of matter. The separate self made out of mind and the separate world made out of matter are fabrications of thought.
0: So how does this become a living reality? If someone, let's say, like Ramana is established in infinite consciousness, and yet can read the newspaper as he did and listen to the radio and help in the kitchen and those things. He's obviously interacting with a world from all appearances. Yes. But I presume you're saying that in his subjective experience there is no world with which he's interacting. There is kind of a, as they call it in Sanskrit, a faint remains of ignorance, a Leśa Vidya world that is like a sheen on the surface of infinite consciousness that by, without which there would be no functionality there would be no ability to interact or experience yes I, or again rage.
1: i i don't want to speculate about ramana maharshi's experience to take
0: examples though to, no, but, to try but, to illustrate what but, you're no, saying so it's not no, just
1: academic no on the contrary it's academic if we take examples of people like ramana maharshi although As you know, I hold him in the highest regard and the highest esteem, but we cannot speak of his experience. That is academic. We can only speak of our own experience, so we should bring it out of the realm of speculation and academics and always referring to other people's experiences and other people's scriptures, although we learn a great deal from them, and we should bring it to our own experience because experience is the test of reality, not what the a great sage says in the book, however, great, however much experience. respect we have, and indeed I have, as you know, great respect. huge respect right. for Ramana Maharshi, yes. but precisely as a result of the respect I have for Ramana Maharshi's teaching, I have learned to trust experience alone.
0: Good. So let's talk about your experience.
1: I've been talking about my experience all afternoon. Okay,
0: so without putting it in the first person, all these descriptions you gave are descriptive of your experience.
1: Yes, let's go back, because we were talking about how the world, how our interaction in the world appears after this self-recognition. And I'd like to refer to one of my current favorite quotations by the poet Shelley, who said... Life, like a dome of many-colored glass, stains the white radiance of eternity.
0: Mm. So you get to quote Western guys, but I don't get to quote Eastern
1: guys. (laughs) That's a fair comment. (laughs) I apologize, Rick. But at the risk of being a little defensive... (laughs) (laughs) I am only using Shelley because he is uh, so eloquent and so I'm just borrowing his words I'm not referring to an experience that I don't know about I'm borrowing his exquisite words because they are so much more eloquent than mine but But I'm now you'll be happy about this I'm (laughs) now going to alter Shelley's words in order to make them my own because if we explore our experience No experience, no thought, no feeling, no sensation, no perception, stains the white radiance of eternity. No experience stains infinite consciousness.
0: Your own experience or anybody's own experience?
1: Everybody's own experience. But I can only speak for my own experience, but I would suggest, because I'm speaking of consciousness as experience, I, consciousness, am not stained by any experience. I'm speaking on behalf of the only consciousness there is. When each of us feels the experience, I am aware. We are referring to the same experience. When we go to the experience of being aware, each of us goes to the same consciousness. I'm speaking on behalf of that consciousness. I have no special access to that consciousness. I have no more access to that consciousness than anybody does. on behalf of that consciousness, which is the only consciousness that I or any of us know. I, consciousness, am never stained by experience. Every experience it doesn't stain me, it colors me. All experience is a coloring. So I this, this yeah. is where I would like to just tweak Shelley's words, life like a dome of many colored glass colors the white radiance yeah. of eternity. Okay. But, so the but white
0: radiance of eternity remains pristine and
1: untouched. Yeah. If we, to take Shelley's metaphor of the white radiance of eternity, you imagine a piece of watercolor paper, an experience is like a like a wash over it, or, or it's, it's like a like a coloring of the screen, it doesn't stain it it passes over it, and every experience whether your experience is, a, is the experience of a, a, a wonderful ecstasy, a beautiful samadhi, a deep depression, a toothache, the taste of tea, this conversation. No experience stains consciousness. Every experience leaves consciousness pristine, luminous, empty, infinite. But I would go even further. I want to tweak Shelley's words even more because to begin with, when we turn on the TV and I'm now talking of a conventional tea being watched by someone on their sofa, it seems as a result of the absorption of our attention in the movie it seems that the screen vanishes. Now, if our attention is exclusively focused on the image or the movie we first seem to find the screen behind the image. It first seems and in exactly the same way most people first find consciousness as the witnessing presence of consciousness in the background of experience. So we have the foreground thoughts, sensations, and perceptions, and we have the witnessing presence of awareness in the background. That's how most of us find consciousness first. Or but in fact, the screen is not in the background of the image. When we turn the, the, the movie on, the movie doesn't obscure the screen. All you're seeing is the screen. So this is where we can tweak Shelley's words even more life like a dome of many colored glass doesn't simply color the white radiance of eternity it shines with the white radiance of eternity all there is in experience is consciousness shining no experience truly obscures consciousness the pedagogical neti neti approach i am not this i am not this approach is a concession to the separate self it's a a teaching device, a legitimate teaching device for those of us whose attention is so fascinated by thoughts and feelings and sensations and perceptions, the teaching says to us, No, see that you are that which is behind all of this, knowing it. And all of this, thoughts, sensations and perceptions, seem from this point of view to obscure this witnessing presence of consciousness. It's a legitimate approach because it establishes not just the presence of consciousness, but the primacy of consciousness. Once that has been established, the neti neti approach has done its job. We we should abandon it because it keeps us in separation. Mm -hmm. The witnessing presence of consciousness here, the body-mind world there. And this collapse of the distinction between consciousness and its objects is the, we could call it the next stage, where we don't see experience staining or, obs- or obscuring consciousness. No, all the experience shines with consciousness. All there is to our experience is consciousness and you can check that in your experience. Ask yourself now the question, do I ever know or come in contact with anything other than the knowing of my experience? Has anybody ever come in contact with anything other than the knowing of their experience? Imagine someone walking on the moon Imagine a nuclear physicist. Imagine someone in a deep depression. Imagine a microbiologist. Imagine, go anywhere you like in the realm of experience. The wonderful experiences, the awful experiences, everything. Do we ever know anything other than the knowing of experience? No. All that's there is knowing. It's not even the knowing of experience, because we never find anything other than knowing. It's not the knowing of something, it's just knowing. It's knowing, knowing, knowing. The self knowing and being itself alone. (laughs) Two or three years ago
0: when I interviewed you the first time, you probably don't remember this, but I really hammered you on this point of seeing the world in terms of consciousness or in terms of the self and so on. And I said, I get the first part, you know, the witnessing and all that stuff, but I I really can't crack this second part. And I'm happy to report that this second part has really... come long a ways since then <laughs> and there's, there's much more of a constant appreciation of, of the, the sort of the divinity inherent in everything, the, the, you know the pure consciousness inherent in everything. But you don't need to comment on that. I just want to give you a progress report. but, the, um, <laughs> <laughs> but another thing a minute ago you were talking about that that Shelley quote, whether consciousness can be stained or is only colored, and so on. And it kind of reminded me of the sun analogy, and the sun could say, it doesn't matter to me whether or not there's clouds, I'm shining nonetheless, Yes, that's clouds another. make no difference whatsoever. Yes. But the thought comes to mind that if this is really to be a practical consideration, and realizing the limitations of metaphors, we have to acknowledge that the vast majority of humanity is on the other side of the clouds, and, and that this, the shining sun is obscured. And a, f- a few minutes ago you mentioned that, you know, the, the symptom or whatever of being establishing pure consciousness is peace and bliss or peace and happiness. Peace and happiness, yeah. not peace and bliss. I, we could argue about bliss too, but the, uh, because it's just a superlative degree of happiness. But for the vast majority of humanity, that unfortunately is just a fantasy or a pipe dream. It's not their actual experience. So you know, we can talk about consciousness never really being overshadowed and never knowing anything other than itself and, and so on, but in terms of what people are actually living, these poor people in Syria or Africa, or, and to take extreme examples the the, the stuff people go through it's um, they wouldn't know what in the world we're talking about. It's, it's not within the realm of their current experience. And so I guess that there have been many great sages and, and, and teachers who have felt compassion for such people and have done their best to somehow get this message to them so that they too could have the kind of experience they were having to whatever extent was possible. So I'm, I, I always do tend to think in terms of the practical implications of anybody's teaching in terms of its ability to help others rise to that level of experience, rather than it being a teacher describing his own experience and the audience saying, yeah, it sounds great, well I've got to go home and face the music.
1: If we really consider the implications of what we've been speaking of, and I don't just mean consider theoretically, because what we've been speaking of has been based only on our current direct experience. The conclusion that we have arrived at, the experiential conclusion that we have arrived at is that all there is is indivisible, unlimited consciousness that knows nothing other than itself. Now, what does that mean? If that is our experience, if we have come to realize this, what does it mean for our experience? When you're speaking with somebody, when you're walking along the corridors here, when you're eating your meals, when you're brushing your teeth, when you're dealing with your taxes, when you're dealing with your equipment for your interviews, when you're uh, paying for your groceries at the checkout counter, when you're paying the cab driver, it means that You never come in contact with anything other than God's infinite being. Live that. Live like that. Live every moment of your life with this feeling, understanding that there is just God's infinite, indivisible, infinite, intimate being. Treat everyone like that, not just your close circle of friends, Not just all people, but all animals. Not just all animals, but all objects. Because there are no objects made out of dead, inert stuff, called matter. Matter is a concept that was invented by the Greeks two and a half thousand years ago to account for that part of our experience which takes place outside consciousness. Scientists have been looking for it for two and a half thousand years. Don't you think they would have found it by now, if it was there? They're still looking. They've been looking for two and a half thousand years, scientists or or philosophers. It's not there. They think
0: they've found it. Most of them do. In fact, most of them deny the reality of what we're talking about. It's not there there because
1: all they find is an appearance in the finite mind, and the finite mind is itself a temporary appearance. It appears in the waking state and the dream state. So, this stuff called matter, out of which the universe is supposed to be made, is. Not absolutely true. It's relative to the finite mind. It's a perception in the mind yeah. that nobody's found stuff called matter. Nobody's found anything that is not a perception. So you just so, people. But but, but, oh, okay. but so I, but I want to. I don't don't go off that down that track. What I'm saying is that when we, to answer your question about yeah. living this, not just with people, not just with animals, but with objects yeah. made of. But this is no less God's infinite being, mm-hmm. your nearest and dearest friend. And when I say this, I'm suggesting that there is this separate object. Experience is always one. I mean, are you now having 10,000 experiences or one experience?
0: It's funny you should mention the number
1: 10,000. We're having one experience. Experience is always one. Experience is never divided into 10,000 things. Treat, I'm keeping with your question, live like that. Mm -hmm. Treat everyone and everything, not intellectually, but feel that everything you know or come in contact with is your own, when I say your own, you, God's being, God's infinite, indivisible, intimate being, shining in all your experience. Live like that. If we live like that, that is the greatest contribution. It is the greatest gift we could ever give to humanity. There's nothing greater than we could give to humanity than that.
0: Totally agree. And over the course of the past 46 years, I've dedicated my life to living like that. And it's a work in progress. But it still is. I'm living Rick, like that more and more as I time I would goes have off. to
1: say, Rick, you are a beautiful example of that. And what you do with your, with your website and your interviews is, is your unique and utterly beautiful way of sharing this experience. And, and it's, it's, you're doing it in your own unique way. I'm doing it in mine everybody yeah. is doing it in their own way yeah I mean you probably
0: do what you do because you do want to share it you're not content to just make ceramics you want to get out there and and share something that you found to be so Rick, precious
1: I do what I do simply because I love it you love it Me too. I just exactly. I just love it yeah for but, no other reason right it's a joy it's there's no I have no mission no but it's it's, it's just, your own fulfillment. it's just it's just somewhere Admananda Krishnamenon says that a moment comes when you can no longer keep what is inside you, inside it just comes bubbling out of you. My cup runneth that, over. That, that, that's, I just feel this... I'm just doing what I love doing. I'm no. not doing it for any reason.
0: No. That's sufficient reason in and of itself, that you love it, if, if we want to call that a reason.
1: Yes.
0: Now, the reason I perked up when you mentioned the number 10,000 is that I was... St- Sorry, I interrupted no, you. Okay. I keep interrupting that's you. Okay. I had just been thinking about the fact that over the course of the next year, let's say, tens of thousands of people will watch this interview. And they'll all hear you say, live like that. And I can imagine 99% of them saying, sounds great. How? You know, what do I do? What do I have to do to live like
1: that? Okay. When you pass a homeless person on the street who's asking for money, you give them money or you don't whatever you choose but when you do so you look into their eyes and you have this feeling understanding that what they truly are is this luminous open empty imperturbable space of pure knowing or pure consciousness in other words with your feeling understanding you feel in your heart that this is what they are they have temporarily forgotten that. But you interact with them, whatever your interaction, whether it's giving them a coin, or whether it's with paying paying your cab driver, or talking with your neighbor, or whoever you are dealing with. you, You hold in your heart this feeling understanding. That which I am relating to is this luminous, open, empty presence that that is identical to myself, not identical to myself, that is myself. You feel that and you allow that feeling to inform your dealings with that person. Now with the homeless person it will express itself one way, with your child it will express itself in another way, with your neighbor it will express itself another way. So this feeling understanding is continuously being tailored to the moment and expresses itself in different ways from moment to moment. But what informs our interactions with people is always this same feeling, understanding, that what they are, who they really are, is this infinite being. And then we don't just, we don't just do this in our interactions with people, but with animals too. We feel about animals in the same way, and we treat them in the same way we first of all evoke this feeling understanding we know that what what this apparent animal truly is, is identical to what we are. Mm -hmm. And we behave, we treat the animal accordingly. That will be different from the way you treat your child or your neighbor or the cab driver. You'll tailor this feeling understanding but nevertheless, however you Relate with the animal will be an expression of this feeling understanding and then don't restrict it to animals Include objects
0: amoebas, Fe- insects.
1: whatever. Yeah, sure <laughs> frogs, beetles, mosquitoes uh, um, Well, mosquitoes comes, and <laughs> no, I didn't say don't swap the mosquito all I all I said was feel it in your heart Yes, your question was about the practical application if we can call it that. Sorry buddy, I love you, next lifetime. But do the same with objects because apparent objects, so much of our experience seems to be an interaction with a world made of dead stuff called matter. Get rid of the idea of dead matter, just scratch it from your repertoire. Mm -hmm. It's not necessary, it's an outdated belief. The new science is not the science of physics, it's the science of consciousness. Live that by by feeling, not just understanding intellectually, sure. but by feeling that everything, everything you come in contact with is God's infinite being, shining. Treat everything like that. And don't wait for this grand realization before you start doing it. No, start doing it now, even if you're, everyone here is, is if, if we don't feel this, we are at least profoundly open to this possibility. Yeah. Live as if this was the case. And the universe will find so... M- your friends, strangers, the universe will find so many ways of letting you know that you are treating them in the right way. Mm. The universe will find ways of smiling at you, saying, thank you for relieving me of the burden of being made out of this dead stuff called matter. The universe, through synchronistic events, through playful interactions, will find innumerable ways, playful, humorous, loving innumerable ways of letting you know thank you for treating me as i am Mm -hmm. your friendships will grow in depth and tenderness and intimacy you will feel this contact with animals and with nature and you'll feel everything is alive with consciousness and the world will will let you know the world will say thank you to you every day the world will let you know Thank you so much for treating me as I am. I've been, I've been suppressed by the burden of materiality for so long and now, now you're treating me as I am. It's mm. such a relief and the, the world will thank you over and over again.
0: Whatsoever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me.
1: And, and that would include Beautiful. the glass. And Yes. The, the yeah, make sure that the least of these is not just human beings, although that's a good place to start. And not just animate things, uh, uh, even. Uh, no. Don't right. make a distinction between right. so, animate and inanimate. Like you've been don't, saying. don't make... It's, it's because we've traced our experience back to the place where there are no distinctions. Right. There are no selves. There are no objects. There is no outside world made of matter. And now we're going back from that understanding back into the world of appearances but we're taking this feeling understanding with us Mm -hmm. and we're allowing it's called the transfiguration in the christian tradition we're allowing the light of infinite consciousness which we've discovered as our essential nature to flood the world Mm. to saturate and permeate not just this body-mind, not just our, our relationship with a few close friends, but to saturate, to pervade and saturate the entire realm of experience. So th- all experience is, is colonized by this feeling, understanding. Yeah. There's a saying,
0: uh, Vasudev, Vasudev Tukumbakam, which means the world is my family.
1: Um, Beautiful, yes.
0: But now, the thought that was kicking around in my mind as you were saying that, which you actually have now begun to answer, was that for many people, that feeling understanding is pretty well snuffed out. And for others, it's a little tiny spark. And for others, it's a raging inferno and and all kinds of gradations in between. But what you began to say is that by taking whatever degree of it you have awakened to Mm -hmm. and beginning to utilize it to, by, to, by treating everything with the kind of kindness and compassion and, and affinity that you've been alluding to, you'll fan the flame and yes. the spark will brighten.
1: Yes. Yes, that's true, Rick, because the light of consciousness is never snuffed out. Yeah. it, N- it is. <laughs>
0: it is I never, not, not utterly, but no, it, it, it is gets never, pretty darn dim in some, in some people's experience.
1: Yes, but just just think about your experience when it is pretty darn dim. Mm. Let's imagine a, a depression.
0: Me De- at the age of about 15, 16. Okay,
1: so <laughs> you, you imagine a depression. It's a, it's a form of suffering. Mm-hmm. And by definition, in our suffering, we are longing for happiness. It's not possible to suffer and not at the same time to long for happiness. In fact, suffering and the longing for happiness are the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So our suffering, the Separate Self feels it as the experience of suffering. The Separate Self feels, I am suffering and I need to go in search of happiness. That is the Separate Self's erroneous interpretation of its experience. What is actually happening is that the source of happiness itself, pure being, infinite consciousness, it has a gravitational force to it. It is pulling the Separate Self back into itself. That gravitational pull is felt from the point of view of the separate self as the longing for happiness. The separate self feels, I long for happiness. No, it's not the separate self that longs for happiness. The separate self, if we concede the existence of the separate self, it does nothing. It is happiness that is pulling the separate self into itself. Beautiful prayer of a a monk in the 16th century. Lord, thou art the love with which I love thee. I thought that I was loving thee. It is you that is loving me. It is your love. The love with which I love thee belongs to you. I thought it was mine.
0: Mm. It's the
1: same thing. Uh, We feel I am suffering and I am seeking happiness. Suffering is the desire for happiness is happiness itself calling us back. Mm -hmm. It's saying, sweetheart, come back to me. Stop looking for me out there. Stop looking for me in the realm of objects, substances, states of mind, relationships. I'm not there. You've been looking for me there for decades. Can't you see? I'm not there. If I was there, you would have found me by now. No, turn around. Come back to me. Come back to your home. In me. That is the experience of suffering. Suffering is a call from happiness. So, even in our darkest depressions, the light of pure knowing is never extinguished. It shines in everyone. It shines in everyone's feelings as a longing for happiness. It shines in everyone's, and the longing for happiness as such is God's footprint in the heart. It shines in the mind as the knowledge I am or I am aware. That is God's signature in the mind. And these are the two possible paths. We either follow the longing for happiness in the heart or we follow the thought I am aware. And if we trace either the feeling of longing for happiness or the understanding I am aware back to their source, these are the two paths of bhakti and That they take us to the same place. And nobody, however dark the depression, we can always say, I am aware. The experience of being aware is available. Even in our darkest moments, that is the light of pure knowing shining in the mind. Likewise, even in our darkest moment, the longing for happiness is never extinguished. That longing for happiness is God's footprint in our hearts. It cannot be extinguished.
0: It's beautiful. We've heard such phrases as "the kingdom of heaven was within." You yes. Know, and so there's this inexhaustible treasury of, you know, happiness and, yes. and and so on within us. And I often think of it the analogy of someone who has won the. You hear these things on the news. Someone wins the lottery and he doesn't realize he's won, and he's got the ticket in some sock drawer or something like that. And he goes on for a year. Or you know, almost misses the deadline, working at some job he hates, and you know, life is horrible and all that stuff, not knowing that he's actually a multimillionaire already, and uh, all he had to do was you know be notified yeah. maybe and cash in the ticket, yes. and of course, that doesn't give him happiness, but it's only a, an analogy. Yeah. <laughs> so sure. we're all yes. you know, analogously speaking, yeah. multimillionaires yes. who just haven't realized that there's a ticket in our sock drawer that yes. it's time yes. to cash it in.
1: Yes. That's a nice example, and and that this the ticket in the Sokdram. The knowing of our own being is not something exotic or extraordinary or something that is only available to one in a million. It's
0: the birthright of everyone.
1: Everybody is aware. Everybody knows the experience of being aware. If we went out onto the streets now and asked, took a survey of all seven billion of us, or maybe, how many are we now, eight billion of us, and asked them the simple question, are you aware? They would all pause and say, yes. That's it, they're being. The experience of being aware of being aware is equally available. It's even closer to us than the sock drawer. It's not buried.
0: Right, right.
1: It doesn't have to be earned. We don't have to discipline the mind to reach it. It's just right there, wide open, just, just ready to be turned towards. Whenever you ask yourself, am I aware, there it is, your own being shining. Whether you're depressed, whether you're happy, whether you're sick, Whatever your circumstances, it's always there, always available to everybody equally. Since we're throwing out a bunch of Bible quotes tonight, uh,
0: there's of course the famous one: "You know, seek and ye shall find; knock and the door shall be opened." And yes. I always translate that as meaning, if you just sort of... And there's, I, there, I know there's some gurus and saints who say, "Take one step toward me; I'll take a thousand steps toward you." Yes, I, I think there's there's magic in that just initial intention to step in the direction that you're talking about, to, yes. to discover what you've been yes. describing. And that, that initial intention works wonders. And one step leads to the next. So if, if you don't feel like, okay, it's day two here, and I'm really not totally getting what Rupert was saying, take day three. Just keep that intention lively and, and let it be yes. uh, continually enlivened more and more, and it bears fruit.
1: Yes, yes th- that's very true. As a concession to the separate self, the teaching traditions give the separate self something to do. Self-inquiry, self-surrender. Takes a
0: thorn uh, to remove a thorn w- and all Whatever.
1: That. The teaching of course knows better. The teaching of course knows that there is no separate self there either to do something or not to do something but out of, out of compassion the, the teaching tailors itself to the moment and elaborates various means or paths through which the apparent separate self may take a step towards Mm -hmm. its reality. Of course, when the separate self dissolves in its source, there is this realization, I was never a separate self. The separate self never came into existence, and the separate self never dissolved out of existence. Give us
0: the TSLA quote.
1: There was just consciousness all along, but as a concession to the belief in a separate, as a compassionate concession to the separate self, the teaching will elaborate these means. I've heard the analogy, a man standing in the middle of a big
0: mud puddle, and someone's out on the end of the mud puddle, and he says, how do I get out of this mud puddle? And the guy on the edge says, take a step. You're asking me to put my foot in the mud. Just take a step, another step. Next, eventually he's out, out of the mud puddle. The word Vedanta means end of the Veda, anta means end, and a lot of times people want to just sort of be at the end, but whether you pursue a Vedic path or not, there may be all sorts of steps that ultimately appear not to have been necessary, but from the perspective of the guy in the middle of the mud puddle, may be necessary to get to the point where that final realization can dawn. And As much as everyone would like to leap from the middle of the mud puddle to being out of it, what that often amounts to, in my experience, is people talking the talk, but not really living what those words represent.
1: You're talking about the traditional progressive Vedantic path. Mm -hmm. And I have respect for that, and I was on that path for many years. What I'm speaking of here is something different. It's the direct path.
0: But what I would suggest is that the fact that you were on it for many years brought you to the direct path.
1: But that doesn't mean that 25 years on the progressive path is a prerequisite for the direct path. It is not. For anybody? Nobody? All that's necessary for the direct path is to ask yourself the question, am I aware? And to pause and to follow your attention back to the experience of being aware and to stay there. That's it.
0: Some people might find in their experience that that's easier said than done. Staying there is is the trick.
1: When I say stay there, I don't mean stay there forever. I mean just allow the attention. You can use this question as an aid Am I aware? It's a new formulation of the traditional question, Who am I? You could use this question, there are many other questions we could use. You use this question, Am I aware, simply as an aid to gently encouraging the attention to sink back into its source Mm -hmm. and just encourage it to rest there. by force of habit, after maybe a short while, the attention will rise again and go outwards towards an object. And if the attention is required by the world, then we should leave our attention dealing with objects. However, when our attention is no longer required by the world, instead of manufacturing another object or series of objects with which to keep itself busy, we can again ask this question or a similar question and thereby encourage our attention, instead of resting on an object, to flow back to its source and rest in its source. And After some time, it's no longer necessary to pose a question our attention it's it's done without words that there is the uh, the attention is no longer required by the world and there is this spontaneous sinking back of the attention and after some time we begin to taste the peace that is available in the depths of our being so the attention needs less and less encouragement to go back to its source it's happy to go back there And it remains
0: there even when it's dealing, you're saying when it's finished, but I'm suggesting even when it's dealing with objects, perhaps even intensely, that we can continue to taste that piece. It's it's not an either-or situation. That's very
1: true, but I was responding to your question about whether the attention should stay there. I wasn't suggesting that one should make a disciplined effort to keep attention resting in its source. It's natural for the attention to go out to objects. What normally happens is that when there isn't an object to attend to, we manufacture an object or series of objects. This is the addiction to thinking.
0: Yeah, we're, we're in order, We turn on the radio. In order
1: to keep the attention rising or, or risen. So it's just the, this gentle encouragement for the mind to sink into the heart, as Ramana Maharshi said, it's this falling back of the attention. And soon we begin to taste the peace of our true nature. There's less incentive for the attention to leave its home unless it is required by circumstances in which case it leaves home, deals with the circumstances and just comes back naturally to rest. It's not a discipline, the important thing uh, is, it's it's not a discipline of the attention.
0: It's a natural style of functioning after a while.
1: It's a a relaxation and the attention should be gently and lovingly encouraged Mm -hmm to sink back into its source. It shouldn't be disciplined. Right. It's not an effort, it is the relaxation of an effort.
0: Well, there's two ways of keeping a dog at your door. one is you chain it, and the dog pulls against the chain and keeps yeah. tugging. Another is to put some good food there, and the dog will just be there. That's so th- it. This, this... The good food is this the... source is blissful or ex- happy, this field of happiness you've been referring to is the good food. Exactly,
1: Yeah. exactly. The peace of our true nature is the good food. and, right. and After a while, the the dog doesn't want to leave home. Right.
0: And, again, the the limitations of metaphors, but the dog (laughs) manages to stay on the porch while exploring the woods. In other words, fully engaged in action and yet established in the peace that passeth all understanding. Yes.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Not an either-or.
1: Exactly. Experience first seems to... Objective experience first seems to veil our true nature and as a result the teaching suggests that we locate awareness as the witnessing presence in the background of experience. Then we abide as that presence of awareness and in this abidance awareness is gradually divested of its limitations and at some point stands revealed as eternal and infinite, ever-present and unlimited but then we return mm-hmm. to the objects of experience, or rather we allow the ob- experience to return to us. We don't go out to them, they come to us. And then we see that all experience, it no longer obscures the presence of consciousness, experience shines with the presence of consciousness.
0: Or if it does, maybe it doesn't obscure it to the same extent, having had okay. a, a taste of that.
1: That's right. And there's so there's,
0: we come back to it again. A,
1: a halfway stage where Experience doesn't obscure pure consciousness, nor does it shine with it, it just colors it, yeah. temporarily colors it. But then the more we live this understanding, even the sense that experiencing is a coloring over pure consciousness begins to give way. Pure consciousness shines through all experience until all objects, thoughts, feelings, sensations and perceptions, however pleasant or unpleasant, are felt to shine with consciousness.
0: Yeah. And speaking of coloring, there's an analogy. In India they used to dye cloth by dipping, and they probably still do, by dipping it in the dye and then bleaching it in the sun. And back in the sun it would lose most of the color of the dye it had been dipped in, but a little bit would be left. And then they dip it again, and then they bleach it again. Oh, more color. Dip it again, bleach it again. Do that enough times, and it's just as colorful in the sun as it is in the dye, and it yes. doesn't get faded anymore.
1: Yes. peace that we first found in the background of experience begins to percolate through, shine through into the foreground of our experience so that all our experiences, we don't have to go into the background anymore to find this peace. Experience is pervaded by this peace. The light of consciousness shines through experience. Experience becomes progressively transparent to the light of pure knowing, more and more transparent. So the light of pure knowing shines more and more brightly. When I say the light of pure knowing, it's a metaphor for the peace of our true nature, this causeless happiness, imperturbable peace, shines through the objects and the objects become Increasingly transparent, increasingly empty, increasingly empty of objectness, increasingly full of them.
0: The light of God, do you want to call it?
1: Increasingly full of the light of God. God shines through all experience.
0: Well, I don't know if we can do any better than that. (laughs) So that would be a good place to conclude. I could actually, um, with a little preparation, could do a whole nother interview because there's a whole nother little compartment of interesting stuff. But it, that would tend to be more speculative and metaphysical. And I think this has been much more direct to our actual experience, as you kept bringing me back yes. to doing.
1: Yes, I'm not very good at...
0: Metaphysical or speculative. Right?
1: Speculative. I'm, I'm very simple, Rick. Yeah. In, I've, I've just learned one very simple lesson in life, and that is experience alone is the test of reality. I've just learned to trust experience. And over the years to question, to question, to question, to question, what is my actual experience? And of course I've received a great deal of help from my teacher and teachers and people that I've read and studied and pondered over and over and over and I've just gone deeper and deeper and deeper into what my actual experience is and I have come to this experiential conclusion all I ever know is ever-present unlimited consciousness God's infinite being and the I that knows it is that which is known there is just God's infinite being that's just a simple experiential conclusion I've come to through trusting my experience.
0: I'll give you a teaser for what we might do a few years down the line. And that would be, if consciousness is the only reality, how is it that objects appear to come into existence? And how is it that there seems to be such a, an incredible, vast, intricate hierarchy of uh, structures and laws of, of nature and and intelligence operating at all the various levels of of creation that scientists identify. What's actually going on to have brought this about? Your original point was that why would consciousness need anything in in order to know itself? So the the question might be, why is there a universe? Uh, Does it somehow have a purpose in enabling consciousness to play with itself or, or even know itself? in a way that uh, in a completely unmanifest state wouldn't have happened. So I I realize that's a little bit metaphysical, cosmological, but I think it's meaningful because um, it can become relevant to our own experience. I think our experience can answer those questions and can, can develop in subtlety and nuance and richness so that that becomes a really germane line of inquiry.
1: Maybe that's for that's what I'm thinking. Two, for another time, time. <laughs> shall we? Shall we stay with God's infinite being shining yes, in all creation? Yes, we experience? should. As I, I know, said, that
0: I'm was just sure. a teaser. You know, <laughs> <laughs> P.T. Barnum said, "Always leave him wanting more." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, this is great, Rupert. I really, really enjoyed this. I'm so glad that we did it instead of over Skype or something. I nice quite to agree. Right. It's lovely
1: to spend time talking with you again. Thank you.
0: Yeah. If I could, I would do all my interviews in person like this. That's, yes, yes. Yeah. And I'm
1: very glad to have done it like this. And I think what you're doing is such a beautiful gift to humanity. And thank you well, Like
0: you, I'm for just doing, doing what I love. There's no great credit for it or anything. No, but
1: it's- I understand.
0: So let me make my usual concluding remarks. I've been speaking with Rupert, it's Spira, not Spira, right? Spira. Spira, yeah. Long eye. We're at the Science and Non-Duality Conference, a plug for our host the Science and Non-Duality Conference, which uh, Rupert and I have been to every year for quite a few years now, as well as many other wonderful people. And as you can imagine from hearing this conversation, it's, it's a very lively place to be. And a number of people have come up to me at the conference and said, gee, I'm here because I've heard you mention it so many times. So, I mean, there are lots of other good conferences, and all kinds of things you can do and places you can go, so I'm not claiming any sort of exclusive specialness for this. But it's just something I have to enjoy. And, and I appreciate our hosts, uh, Maurizio and, and Zaya Benazzo, for allowing me to do these interviews here. He did say to put a banner up. I said, all right, I'll put a banner up, but I draw the line at any kind of tattoo. So there may or may not be another one or two interviews while I'm here at the conference, but whether or not there are, this is an ongoing series. I've been doing it for five years now. Um, There are over 250 interviews online at batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. So if you go there, you can explore around and you'll be able to find them. There's a past interviews menu and they're categorized in several different ways. There's a future interviews menu showing what's coming up. There's a donate button and if people never clicked that I wouldn't be here. Um, so I appreciate it when people feel motivated to do that. There is a newsletter you can sign up for to be notified by an email maybe about once a week when every new interview is posted. There is a chat group that you can participate in which is fairly strictly moderated these days because we want it to be a very civil, intelligent place to have a discussion and not a place to sort of trash one another as sometimes happens in online discussion groups and there's also an audio podcast of this whole thing which has almost as many listeners as the youtube thing has viewers so if you don't have the time to sit in front of your computer for hours on endless watching things put it on your ipod and listen during your commute it'll be maybe of some value so thanks for listening or watching and we'll see you with the next one whatever that might be